Um, the scripture this morning is Luke 16, 1 through 15. Jesus also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a, who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and he said to him, what is this I hear about you? Turn your account of your management for you no longer, um, you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, quick, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is the word of the Lord. Oh, you know what? I haven't finished. Let me keep going. <laughs> so there was a break. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to, him, he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Ms. Portlock. <clears throat> well, good morning to you. Uh, in case you don't know me, I am Stan McMahon. I'm the associate pastor over at Trinity in Lakeland, uh, the church that seven years ago you guys went out from to plant here in Winter Haven. So it's good to be here and see a lot of familiar faces, but also some brand new faces. Um, I, I love being a part of our church planning network here in Polk County. Uh, one of my favorite things about it is being involved in the weekly pastors' meetings where we get around a table. And we discuss the sermons that we're doing. We're all preaching the same thing. You guys are aware of this. Uh, we, are, we are also in Luke. And this month of October, we're also looking at the parables throughout the Gospel of Luke that focus on money. And I have to say, I've noticed more and more pastors asking others to come fill their pulpits during this month uh, on money. There's lots of musical chairs going on. Um, and, and rightfully so. Money is a hard thing to talk about. Uh, I have come to this text and to you this morning with it with some uh, degree of trembling because of that. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, and everybody will tell you this, you know, you study the Bible, if you've read, you know, the Gospels a lot, you'll know this to be true. Jesus talks about money and material possessions a lot. Uh, in fact, there really is no single topic that he talks more about than money and material possessions. Uh, but over the course of this week, this, this question has been turning in my mind, why? And one of the things I've noticed in answer to that question is, when Jesus addresses money or material possessions, 
he always connects it directly to the very heart and soul of the gospel. The gospel, that, that is the story of our sin, God's grace, and Christ's life in the place of our life so that we, we might be saved from our sin. That story is something that Jesus always connects to money when he talks about it. Uh, either he's starting with the gospel and he's going to money as a, as a source of illustration and implication, or he's starting with money and he's working his way back to that, that very core issue of the gospel because the way that we use our money is directly tied to how we understand the gospel. And here's why. Here's why. The gospel is all about, it's the good news of what God has done with his stuff. Isn't that true? The gospel is the good news about what God has done with his stuff. And so therefore, my response, your response to that gospel is always going to have something to do with what you do with yours. The gospel is about what God does with all of his stuff, and he owns everything. We read in the call to worship, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The gospel is about what he does with that to enrich you and me. And so our response will will always touch on the way that we employ and use the, the possessions that we've been given. So here in our parable this morning in Luke 16, Jesus tells a, a very unlikely story. Uh, a story that might shock you that it's coming from the lips of Jesus to tell us how to use our material possessions because at the center of the story is a crook. Did you notice that as, as we were reading the text? The, the main character, kind of the guy he wants you to root for, is a thief. And then Jesus sort of lifts this thief up and says, hey, I want you to go and at least in some way be like him. Did that surprise anybody else? It surprised me a lot. And then I began to think, you know what? I do that, though, with, with a lot of other stories and movies. Maybe you have found yourself in the same situation, rooting for the bad guy in a movie. Have you ever rooted for the bad guy? Or maybe there's a particular movie where the protagonist is kind of an unsavory character. Uh, I think about the, the Oceans trilogy. Anybody in here ever seen those? Oceans 11, Oceans 12, Oceans 13. Well, if you think about it, who are you rooting for throughout the course of all those movies? A group of thieves. <laughs> uh, a, a group of, of good-looking Hollywood stars, right? But, but, but they're, they're completely all about this heist, this plan to... To, to, to steal loads and loads and gobs and gobs of money from great casinos all around the world. And the whole time we're sitting on the edge of our seats, steal it, do it, take it. This is what I want, you know. But we're rooting for an unsavory, immoral character. But why are we doing it? Why is Jesus holding that kind of person up in front of us? Well, it's not because he wants us to be dishonest. And when we root for the Ocean's Eleven people, it's not because we love their dishonesty. It's because there's something about them in spite of their dishonesty. There's something about them in spite of their unsavory character that is imitatable, that is actually very virtuous. And and in this story, Jesus tells you what it is about this guy in verse 8. If you look down at your Bible in verse 8, the word shrewd or shrewdness is used a couple of times. And it's Jesus who says, I want my disciples to go and be shrewd like this guy is shrewd. We'll talk about that word throughout the day. In fact, if you look at the, the handout that's in your worship folder, it has a sermon outline. And there are three basic points I want to make about this shrewdness from this text. Uh, first, I want to walk you through what it is. What is this shrewdness that Jesus is calling us to? 
Second, I want to ask the question, why don't we naturally have it? And third, I want to answer the question, how can we get it? So what is this shrewdness? Why don't we naturally have it? And how can we get it? Uh, First, what it is. Jesus unfolds through the story in a very dramatic way what this kind of shrewdness is like that he wants his disciples to have with their money and material possessions. He does it by telling a story that has a really shocking surprise right in the middle. I don't know if that if it caught you off guard, but, but I think if we're thinking through the lens of the original context, Jesus is talking in you know, the first century in the Middle East to both religious people and tax collectors and sinners. He has a mixed audience in front of them. And all of them are coming with Middle Eastern sensibilities and Middle Eastern assumptions. Uh, there's a scholar by the name of Ken Bailey. Some of you may be familiar with his work. Maybe by the way, by way of Paul Miller and his person of Jesus study. But Ken Bailey spent many, many years in the Middle East studying Middle Eastern culture. And he has this book called Poet and Peasant that goes through the parables of Jesus. And he points out all the different Middle Eastern assumptions that people would have had listening to this parable for the first time. Which demonstrate just the shock and the surprise of what ends up happening there in verses 4 through about 7. But the story unfolds slowly. Jesus starts just describing something that everybody had seen at at the time. There's this really rich guy in verse 1. And he has this other guy who works for him called the manager. The rich guy is extremely rich. It's probably because he owns a lot of land. We know that because the debt that the people owe him is a debt in produce. Uh, The arrangement that would have happened back then a lot is a lot like the, the sharecropping that used to happen in the American South where... A really rich person would own a lot of land, rent it out to be farmed by tenants who would then pay him back out of some of that year's harvest. That's what's going on here. This very wealthy man has this manager to manage his affairs, to keep the books, uh, to to be the go-between between him and his debtors to make sure all the debts are paid. But there in verse 1, something happens that you might imagine would probably happen a lot back then. Charges were brought, it says in verse 1, to the master that his manager had been wasting his possessions. You could see how that could happen, right? You could see how a manager like him, given all the freedom and authority that, he's, that he has over his master's goods, might try to kind of line his pockets a little bit. Might try to take a little bit for himself and then go and waste it on his own pleasure kind of under the table. That's what he's doing here. That word that, that's used there in verse 1, wasting his possessions. It also could be translated, he squandered it. He scattered it everywhere. He used it haphazardly. He went and had a night on the town. He took it and went and wasted it at Vegas. I mean, just think of all the ways that you can throw money out the window. This is what this guy's doing with his master's money. In fact, it's the same word used up in verse 13 in the story of the prodigal son. Where the younger son says to his dad, in effect, I wish you were dead. Now please give me my inheritance that's coming to me so I can go use it however I want. And he goes far away from his dad. He goes out into the far country and he wastes it, it says, on reckless living. This manager is doing the same thing. The charges are brought. Everybody in the audience listening to this knows what's going to happen next. And there's no surprise. In verse 2, the manager calls him in or the master calls him in and fires the manager right on the spot. You see that in verse 2. He says, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. He's believed all the reports that he's heard. 
He has all the evidence he needs, and he basically says, hand me your badge, hand me your keys, hand me your flashlight, you're fired. And, and, and then the guy in, verse, in the next verse, verse 3, realizes he has been left completely high and dry. He has just a couple of hours. He has a very small window of time. Maybe it's an afternoon to go back to his office, to gather up his stuff, to get his account books in order so that he can go back and turn them in. After that, this news is going to break. Everybody in the village is going to know this guy's a crook. He was fired because he's a crook. Everybody in the village is going to know, and he's not going to be able to get another job. No way, no how. This man is absolutely high and dry. And so he starts to think to himself in verse 3, What shall I do? My master is taking the management away from me. I'm not strong enough to dig. Digging's the lowest job you can imagine in that culture. Hard, back-breaking work. I'm not strong enough to do that, and I'm too ashamed to beg. I'm not blind, I'm not otherwise physically incapacitated, and for anybody else besides the physically incapacitated to, to take up a life of panhandling was absolutely shameful at the time. And so he says, I can't do those two options. I know nobody's going to hire me. I have nothing to do, high and dry, and then here's where the surprise comes. Here's where Jesus, I believe, in the, in the ancient Near Eastern culture is throwing a twist into the story. In verse 4, all of a sudden, the light bulbs come on in this guy's mind. I have decided what to do so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. He doesn't say what his plan is, but in verse 5, he starts to enact it. He calls in the debtors one by one. He summons them officially to the office. They don't know yet that he's been fired. He says, how much do you owe the master? A hundred measures of oil, which is a whole lot of oil. 875 gallons of it. Okay, well here, take the bill. I want you to cut that debt in half. You only know now, you only owe now 500 or 50 measures of oil. Then he calls in another debtor. That next debtor owes a thousand measures of wheat. He says, I want you to slash that in half. I want you to cut it down by 20%. You only owe 80 measures of wheat now. And we can imagine he goes down the line one by one, debtor after debtor after debtor. How much do you owe today's congratulations? It's clearance day, right? And here's where Ken Bailey has such great insight into this culture because he realizes, wait a minute, what would start to happen as each debtor leaves the office that day? Immediately they would go out into the village singing the praises of the master, singing the praises of this guy who apparently, in their view, has just authorized the slashing of their debt. And they're, they're, they're throwing parties. They're, they're you know, singing his name in songs. There's a clearance down at the big house, people. Get down there and get, you, and get your debt canceled. Ken Bailey gives us that insight because what he's showing is just how absolutely crafty, how absolutely clever. I mean, people listening to the story would have been you know, delighted at just how cunning this guy is. He's putting his master in a corner. Because when this situation begins to blow up, either the master comes out and corrects what the manager has done. Hey, there really isn't any clearance at the big house. I just fired this guy, and it's a long story, but you still owe me everything that you once owed me. Now, if he does that, what's going to happen to him? (laughs) If he does that, his name is not going to be saying in praises, right? His name is going to be defamed you know everybody's going to go around saying what what a jerk he gave and then he took away 
Either he's going to do that, or he's just going to quietly accept what his cunning and shrewd manager has done. And he's going to let the praises go to the, go to the sky. He's not going to say too much about firing the guy for dishonesty. He's going to let him go free. He's going to have, the manager that is, is also going to have a whole bunch of new friends that he just earned because he gave him a giant discount who are then going to be able to hire him into his house. What, an, what a surprising, clever, tricky plot. I mean, this guy realizes, I'm in a crisis. There's absolutely nothing that I can think to do. Wait a minute, I can do this. I can elevate my master's reputation at the same time that I make friends, using my resources in front of me in that one last afternoon that I have left, using those resources with absolute shrewdness. And that's why the master is left with nothing to say in verse 8. But wow, what a shrewd guy. He commended his dishonest manager for his shrewdness. And then Jesus does the same in that same verse. He says, for the sons of this world, those who, for whom this world is all there is, for those that aren't my disciples, they are often more shrewd in dealing with their generation than the sons of light, than my disciples. What's he saying? The same kind of shrewdness that this man has developed in the story is the kind of shrewdness I want you as my disciples to also have. I want you to make that movement in your life from being the reckless waster of things, like the dishonest manager is at the beginning, to recognizing the crisis of everything temporal is going to fail one day. And because of that crisis, to make the move to being somebody who knows how to shrewdly use all of my temporary resources for maximum eternal effect. Do you see that's what Jesus is saying? I want you to learn because you know as my disciples that everything that God entrusts to you now will not last forever. I want you to, instead of using that on your own pleasures and on your own self and just to to pile up more and more and more of it, I want you to learn how to be shrewd in your investment of it in other people. I want you to be shrewd in your investment of it in the glory of God, so that when that fails, you'll have something that lasts forever. That's what Jesus says in verse 9. He says, I tell you the truth, make friends for yourselves, just like this dishonest guy, by means of your unrighteous wealth, by means of your worldly possessions, so that when it fails, not if it fails, (laughs) but when it fails, God or they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. You might have True riches forever and ever with God. What is this shrewdness that Jesus is is commending to us? It's a special kind of wisdom. It's a sharp, surgeon-like ability to discern between a good and a better and a best way to use all the resources that God has given you. You see, it's not just broadly saying, uh, here's bad, immoral things to do with my money, and here's some good things to do with my money. Because usually, usually there's a whole lot of possible good options. And Jesus says, that's not good enough for you just to pick a good one. What I want you to do is learn how to discern between all the good ones and find the best one. To find the one that results in the greatest kingdom impact, the greatest eternal impact, by, by ministering in love to people with it. That's what he means by make friends for yourselves. Love people well with your money. That's the reason God has given it to you. It's only when we become utterly convinced, like this manager, that that I'm toast, all of this is going to fail, 
that we begin to make the right investment. Um, Had you asked or, or consulted any of great investment magazines giving you advice on what companies to invest in back throughout the entire 1990s, you would have found there was a particular company that they would have always come back to. This is the most innovative company. They're making the most money. Stocks are the highest. Invest in it. And then, after the 1990s, in 2001, that company, Enron, (laughs) imploded from the inside. You remember that story when Enron went bust because they had been cooking the books. The money really wasn't there. But all through the 90s, everybody said, this is where you need to put your money. Jesus is saying the same thing has to happen. Every temporal thing, it's not evil, money's not evil, possessions are not evil, but it is temporary. Not really any different than Enron, except a matter of timing. At some point, every material thing will fail us. And so Jesus says, in light of that, learn to be a really shrewd investor in eternal persons. Because eternal persons are more valuable than temporary things. That's exactly what God does. Remember the Gospels about what God does with his stuff? The Bible says God shares, he gives, he He gives the rain so that the ground will produce crops, so that people could eat, so that people could be energized to go and care for the creation. There's this sort of ecosystem that God has designed where he's giving, giving, giving so that everything could prosper. Giving to us so that we can share to others. That's what Jesus means when he says, I want you to lay up treasures for yourselves in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy. And where thieves do not break in and steal like they do here. Lay up your treasures in heaven for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I want you to be shrewd, he says. I want you to be wise in your use of material things. Living by the values of the kingdom now. Living by the values of eternity here and now in this temporary fading world. Uh, I don't remember who said it. I'm sure I probably didn't think this up, but I couldn't find where I'd gotten this. But somebody once observed that perhaps one of the reasons why the Bible makes this big deal that in heaven the streets are paved with gold. You know, you see that in Revelation. Maybe perhaps one of the reasons is this. Because when we get to heaven, we're going to reverse the way that we valued things here on earth. And here on earth, we're we're busy all the time walking over people to get to gold. And there we're going to finally be walking over gold to get to God and other people. And I don't remember where I read that, but that's a really brilliant thought and insight. And what Jesus is saying is, don't wait till then. Start now. Be like this wise guy. Start right now living as if people are more important than gold and riches. Well, the second thing is, why why aren't we shrewd this way? What is it about us that, that makes this kind of shrewdness difficult? And I think in a word, it's greed. Uh, it, it's simply our greed. But Jesus gives us some more detail. He helps us understand our greed. Why do we have this insatiable craving for more stuff for me? Uh, In verses 10 through 13, he unpacks that. Uh, Notice how he's contrasting two categories of things in his rhetorical questions there in 10, 11, 12. uh, Yeah, 10 and 11 and 12. If you have a pen or something, you might want to underline the contrast just to give you a visual. He contrasts what is much with what is very little. Underline that contrast. He contrasts unrighteous wealth with true riches. Underline that contrast. And then finally in verse 12, he 
he points out the difference between that which is another's, which doesn't even really belong to you, and that which is your own. And in every case, what he's contrasting is what we have right now on this earth and what God will entrust to us in the next world. You see, what, what is little, what is much, what is the unrighteous wealth of this life, what is true riches, what is another's entrusted to you for a temporary time, and what God will give to be your very own forever and ever. And he's saying in these questions, if you're faithful in the first column, if you're faithful here and now, you can expect full enjoyment of the other in the next. But notice, he doesn't just leave it at that. Jesus is not just teaching here, do-it-yourself salvationism. Like if you could stroke a check today, that you would automatically get a ticket to heaven. (laughs) Jesus is not teaching that kind of thing. Instead, what he goes on to say in verse 13 is the way we use the little, the way we use that which is another's, is a window into our heart. And whether our heart is even really capable of receiving what is true. And the way he puts it is this. It it tells us where your true allegiance is. Notice in verse 13. No servant, he says, can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. Now in our time, of course, someone can have more than one employer. You can work two jobs, three jobs. But Jesus is talking in terms of servant, master, not employee, employer. And in the world of servant, master, your whole life is to be devoted to. It's a whole allegiance. The whole course of your life is dedicated to that person. You, you by definition, can't have more than one of those. Uh, you might think of it today as sort of your, your nationality. It, you know, if, you were, uh, uh, if you worked for the United States CIA, for the, for the U.S. government as a spy, And you were a double agent also working for the Russian government as a spy. At some point down the line, your true allegiance is going to have to come out. Because at some point, that's going to come to bite you. (laughs) That's what he's saying about God and money. It's two different countries. It's two different different kings. You can only give your, your heart to one or the other. When you give your heart to money instead of God, what results is greed. And the reason for that is this. God created us for himself. God is a being of infinite worth and beauty and delight. Therefore, our hearts are naturally filled with a hunger and a yearning for something infinitely awesome and beautiful. And when we turn from the one who is able to fill that deep yearning in me, and we turn towards this other thing, money or possessions, which is small and temporary, and try to feed our infinite hunger with finite, limited things, we're never going to get satisfied. And we're always going to be on that that stretch to get more, 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 more. That's where greed comes from. Greed is a function of idolatry. Greed is a function of worshiping something in the place of my creator. I try to find my salvation in money when I'm greedy. It, It justifies my existence. I try to find my satisfaction in money. It It makes me feel fulfilled, like I have a purpose in life. Those are things, you see, we should only be getting from God. Those are things only God can give us. And when we we turn from from God to those things and become greedy, the way we know that we're doing that in our lives is where love for others begins to disappear from our priorities. Where it becomes more about me than about anyone else. And so here's a few diagnostic questions that I've asked myself through the week. 
Who am I most enthusiastic about in my life? Who am I most enthusiastic about helping? Is it, like Jesus says in Luke 14, those who can pay me back? Those who, who can lift my reputation up in helping them? Or is it those who are completely all costs, who I know I'll never get anything back from? If it's only those who can pay me back, there is a sign that greed has some play in my heart. Am I more excited about adding stuff to my collections when I get my paycheck than I am about enriching someone else? Do do I only leave the leftovers after I've served myself to help other people? And, and when we start to think about that, it, it began to open up in my mind, at what point do I think I have been adequately cared for? You see, I think uh, we can broaden the definition of caring for ourselves pretty wide to the point where this week I became aware, if I don't have my Netflix paid for, my Sling TV paid for, you know, then I'm not cared for. My high-speed, super high-speed internet, it's got to be the top roadrunner, right? So that I can watch my Netflix without interruptions. Maybe you're like me. And when I think about that, what is left over after all that? Not a whole lot. And if I'm only leaving the leftovers to think about how I can leverage that for the good of other people, there might be some greed in there. Or or what do you consider when you make big decisions, when you change jobs or take a new position or move to another neighborhood or city? Does it ever have anything to do with positioning yourself so that you can help another person? Or is it only about getting that next promotion, that next rung on the ladder up to the success that I think is going to satisfy me? That's what Jesus is saying. When you try to serve money, your ability to be shrewd is gone. Because all you're going to do is feverishly try to feed yourself, to feed that yawning, gaping hole in your heart that only God can fill. So our culture is absolutely wrong. Greed is not good. Back in 1986, a man named Ivan Bosky, who was a a, a trader in the stock market on Wall Street, gave the commencement speech at Cal Berkeley, University of California. And famously, he said, greed is all right, by the way. This is what he said. Greed is all right, by the way. I want you to know that I think greed is healthy. You can be greedy and still feel good about yourself. And from that moment, Kind of a whole cottage of books and and movies came out, including the the 80s classic Wall Street about Gordon Gekko. Do you remember that movie? Where famously he said, greed is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Greed makes the world go around. Without greed, we have nothing. And indeed, our culture paints it that way, like it's a good thing. It's one of those sins that won't get you fired from work. It, It won't get you a bad grade in school. In fact, you'll get a promotion for being greedy at work. Because it comes masquerading as productivity. Uh, It comes uh, masquerading as responsibility and commitment. That person has a great work ethic. That person is a real go-getter. And really what we're describing is that person has a hole in his heart. He's trying to fill with position and power and stuff and money. And he sadly disconnected himself from God. And so Jesus gives us in verses 14 and 15 a completely new assessment of greed. He looks at the Pharisees, it says in 14, and he knows that in spite of their religious uh, veneer on the outside, they were really lovers of money rather than lovers of God. See, See what it says? They were lovers of money. And so therefore, when they heard this message about being shrewd, 
they thought Jesus was absolutely ridiculous. What do you mean? Use my money for, to make friends? What? That's what losers do. That's what the Pharisees were thinking because they had so bought into the greedy mindset. And so in verse 15 it says, You are those who justify yourselves before men. You are those who think you're all that and you make other people think you're all that. But God knows your heart. For what is exalted among men, what men say is worthy, greed is good, God thinks is an abomination. That word abomination is a pregnant biblical word. It's all over the Old Testament. It basically means it stinks. <laughs> it stinks to God's nostrils. It's detestable. We say greed is good. God finds that it stinks to high heaven when people become a cul-de-sac unto themselves, feeding themselves and not giving out to others. Greed is why we're not shrewd. And if we look around and look inside of us, we, we, we can't find a solution to this problem just in our own resources. People have tried. Politics have tried. You know, the communist movement is all about trying to fix greed. It tends to only breed it in just a smaller proportion of society. The recent Occupy movement, um, do you see people with pickets at, at Wall Street saying, love more people, love more people? <laughs> now, the Occupy movement is more about, hey, you've got a lot. Give me a piece of that. Break me off a piece. So it's just trying to solve your greed with my greed. See, political solutions don't really work. Going up and down the economic scale doesn't work because poor people can be greedy. Middle class people can be greedy. Rich people can be greedy. They asked the great John D. Rockefeller, the, one of the richest men in American history, how much money is enough money, Mr. Rockefeller? And famously he said, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. And that's the way greed is. You don't fix it by getting more stuff. You'll always want just a little bit more because it's an infinite hole that you and I are trying to fill. So the last question, we'll, we'll go through this quickly. How do we get it? Because this passage gives us great hope. Without the gospel, the only way we can affect change is through force or guilt. But Jesus comes in and he changes our very hearts. Not by force, not by guilt, but by his great shrewdness in giving himself up for us. And so I want you to notice in the story a few things about God. Because God is being put on display in the story. First, the rich man in verse 1 is a whole lot like God in many ways. Isn't that true? <clears throat> God is wealthy. God has ev- all things. Uh, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof we read earlier. And this rich man, this God, has entrusted all of his goods to us so that we can use it as he wants. And just like this rich man, there's going to come a day when he's going to call you and me also to account. He's going to say, turn in your badge, turn in your flashlight, turn in your keys. Give me the account book. What have you done with my stuff that I entrusted to you? And one thing is for sure, as I examine my heart, apart from Christ, I'm going to owe God a whole lot. (laughs) I'm going to have a debt I could never repay because of what I've wasted. And my heart is going to be shown to be so far, so foreign to his heart. He's all about love, and I've been more than likely all about myself. And there's nothing I'm going to be able to do about it. But God is also like this master in a different way. He too is a generous man. This master could have called off all the parties and said, hey, no, pay, no debt cuts for you. 
Stop the parties. This guy's dishonest. I'm throwing him in jail. Instead, he just lets it happen. He, he takes the hit. He lets himself and his bank account take the hit so that others could be enriched and be blessed, even those that were radically undeserving like this crooked manager. He takes the hit for them. And that's the very thing that God has done for us. The Bible says God so loved that he did what all lovers do. He gave. And when he gave, he gave in eye-popping proportions. He gave his very own son. And Jesus, when he came, fully paid our debt by giving himself on the tree. That's what it says in Colossians 2. In the ancient world, when a debt was paid, they would drive a nail through the bill. That's, that's a known practice. And it says in Colossians 2 that when Jesus died on the cross, he nailed the record of our debts with him there, paid in full. But not only that, he came to make us his friends. We read in our assurance of pardon from John 15, where Jesus is explaining to his disciples what he's about to do on the cross. And he said, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. He didn't just give his stuff. He gave himself along with all of his stuff. And you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants. For a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. You did not choose me, but I have chosen you. You see, because Jesus chose us, because Jesus came, paid our debt, and made us his friends, we can be completely free in Christ. I don't have to prove my worth or justify my existence by my bank account anymore. He proved my worth and justified my existence by dying for me on the cross. I'm friends with God now. I don't have to go looking for another experience or just one more raise to feel satisfied or one more trinket or gadget. He satisfies me because he's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. A friend that I will have from now on until all eternity. Because I've become convinced that true riches are found in Christ and they're mine in Christ, it clears my vision to see the priority of people over possessions. And finally, I can learn what it means to be free from greed. And I can come to rest in the fact that he satisfied me so that what I've been given, I can give to enrich other people. I don't know if there's any other Lord of the Rings nerds in the room, but I'm one of them. I think there's a really good picture of this in that book. The ring, you know, I mean, it's, it's a great symbol for wealth and what it can do to the human heart. It, your possessions come to possess you, right? And, and the, the, the creature Smeagol becomes Gollum, this, this twisted, nasty monster, because he's possessed with this ring. It's no longer just a ring, it's my precious. But somehow, some way, Frodo and Sam, the hobbits, carry the ring to destroy it, and they don't get ultimately overtaken by the greed. Why not? I was reading a biography of Tolkien, and it said this, the reason why Frodo and Sam didn't get overtaken, but what the whole book's about is their friendship. It was that they knew each was for the other, that when all this was done, it was going to be back at home, back at the Shire, back at the hearth, together as friends, one to one. And they so valued that relationship. They so valued what was to come that they didn't let the lies of, of a quick fix and temporary hits of pleasure that the ring gave them, they did not let that overtake them. And that's what Jesus does for us. He is our friend. 
He promises us true riches. In fact, he delivers on them even now by being with us and in us. That's why the early church was able to sell their possessions and share to any who had need. It tells us in Acts 4, there was no needy person among them because they gave, they gave, they gave, they gave. At Trinity, we talk about wanting to be a church that gives our stuff in eye-popping proportions so that the city of Lakeland has to scratch their head and say, how is that possible? And I know you guys think the same way. What would Winter Haven be like if Redeemer was a place where people gave in eye-popping proportions? We would have to stop and say, that's not normal. They must have a connection that we don't have. And that's exactly what it is. It's a connection that every one of us in this room today can have. A connection with Christ and his true riches. That's the only source of being truly wise with the thing that God has entrusted us with. Please pray with me. Lord God, I thank you for your word and the power of it that to convince us of our sin and our misery, but also to convince us of your great salvation. And so God, we come today, I come very, very aware that I have given in to greed at many places throughout my life. And in all those places, it's because I'm trying to find in something what I can only find in you. And so God, I pray today that each person in here would see you, Lord Jesus, the ultimate shrewd manager, who did the shrewdest thing in all of history when you gave everything on the cross and it looked like you were losing, but actually you were gaining a people for yourself, for your own glory, for all eternity. Father, please help us to embrace you today, to know the joy and freedom of being in you so that we might be people who are shrewd, who want to do the absolute best thing in giving our temporary possessions for eternal good. God, we praise you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, It's a wonderful expression of all the riches that Christ has given to us. And it was at, at his own expense. He was made poor so that we might be enriched like this. So if your faith is in Christ, please receive the promise of God in the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace today.